Hey, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Churchwood Forest. We want to welcome you to our podcast today. Our mission at Restoration is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So that happens in a lot of ways, but on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open the word of God and we explore the application and the truth of how God's word can be applied to our lives. And so today, I hope that you enjoy this message from God's word. Hey, we don't want this in any way to be a replacement for church. Let it be a supplement for you. But if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us any week at 8 o'clock, 945, and 1130. We hope you enjoy the message. Welcome to Restoration. So um, travel is a part of the holiday season. How many of you traveled uh, during this holiday season? How many of you plan to travel during this holiday season? Okay. Some of you. How many of you are not leaving ever? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. How many of you refuse to raise your hand for anything, I ask? Uh, you know who you are. I'm not going to make eye contact. Um, yeah, so when I think about travel, I think about, uh, you know, you go to the airport and you're waiting on somebody. And what are you looking at? You're looking at that whole board that says arrivals. And, and so either on your phone, you're sitting in the cell phone lot, or uh, you're waiting in that ridiculous line at uh, George Bush. They need to finish that construction, by the way. Uh, but, but at any rate, you're always looking at the arrivals. I remember in September when we went uh, to England, we rode uh, public transportation a lot. And so we were always looking at the arrival schedule, standing there on the subway, waiting for the next train to come. And, and, and what does uh, arrival, what, what do we do while we're waiting? We become more and more expectant. There's an expectancy that comes with arriving, right? You, 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 you sit, you stand, you wait, and you're waiting expectant of what comes next. Maybe you've got family or friends coming into town, and so you're waiting for that plane to land, or you're waiting for your transportation to take you on to your destination. So uh, this word arrival, we have a word for it in the church that we celebrate this time of year, and it's called Advent. And the word Advent means arrival. And so over the next four weeks, we are in preparation for the arrival of Jesus. And so we celebrate Christmas Eve and Christmas Eve is the coming of Jesus. And uh, we uh, eagerly await that day. And so every week we will light a candle in, in preparation. This is our Advent, preparation for the arrival of Jesus. And our, our theme for Advent this year is God with us. And, and so, man, uh, all of the worship this morning, you could just feel this theme of, of God is with us. And as we sang, God is not just with us, God is for us. Yes. Now, we know in Isaiah 7, 14, there's lots of prophecy pointing to the Messiah, pointing to a Savior. Isaiah, in chapter 7, verse 14, he didn't even know what he was saying because there was a short-term fulfillment of this prophecy, but a longer term, which was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. But look, in 714, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That word Emmanuel we see in chapter eight of Isaiah means God with us. Yes, and then we see in John chapter one, 
We see the fulfillment of this where uh, John is talking about Jesus and he says, in the beginning was the word, Logos, the word, Logos was with God, the word was God, he was with God in the beginning. Uh, by him, all things were created, nothing was created without him. And then as you jump down to verse 14, he said this, the word became what? Flesh. God became flesh and blood and made his dwelling among us. What is that? God with us. God with us. Say it with me. God with us. Say it like you mean it. God with us. Some of you are experiencing the presence of God with us for the very first time this morning. You came with someone, you got dragged here by someone, uh, you're wondering what time this will be over. Um, just hang on. Um, the, the, the goal this morning is for us all to experience a very, very present God. He is not distant. He is here. He is near. God with us. Um, but really, this, this idea of God with us, it's a theme throughout the Bible. It starts in the book of Genesis. If you remember, in the garden, Adam and Eve, it says that God was walking with them in the cool of the day, that, that God was dwelling with his people. God with us, sin enters the world. We get into Exodus and, 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 and the, the Israelites are enslaved by the Egyptians. Moses comes and delivers them. And during their 40 years of preparation in the wilderness, do you remember what happened? Um, God tells Moses to create a tabernacle and that tabernacle became the place where the presence of God dwelt. God with us. They enter into their land of promise and eventually in Jerusalem, uh, Solomon builds a temple. A temple was a place where God dwelled and where people would go to worship God with us. But then we fast forward, like we said in the book of John, that, that God became flesh and made his dwelling among us, God with us. But then we know the crucifixion, the resurrection, but the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, remember when the Holy Spirit descended it's this beautiful picture of God with us, but not just God with us, God in us. Everyone who says yes to Jesus receives the spirit of Jesus on the inside of them. So it's all throughout the Bible. It's one of the major themes of the Bible that God is with us. And so for the next four weeks, we're gonna spend some time in the gospels and we're gonna look at the effects that the presence of Jesus has in the lives of those who he interacts with. He steps into people's brokenness and he creates this sense of expectancy Amen. because he transforms lives. Amen. And here's my hope, my hope for you. Maybe you're hanging out here today and maybe you're nominal where this is concerned. Maybe today God would create a sense of expectancy in you that you would feel his nearness, that you would feel God with us, but even better, God for us. So we're gonna be looking at John chapter four. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Um, and instead of reading through it, I thought it would be nice for us to have uh, this story illustrated um, Dallas Jenkins does an incredible job of illustrating this in The Chosen. This is an interaction that Jesus has with a woman by a well in Samaria, check this out.
you give me a drink? Did you hear me? That's bad, huh? What? You, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, and a woman. I'm sorry. I should have said please. You know, it's not safe for you to be alone out here. Nor you. Why haven't you come with others? Why so late in the day? Don't women come to the wells in the, the cool of the morning? Yeah, well, none of them will be seen with me, so I have to come at noon in the heat. You have so kindly reminded me. Why won't they be seen with you? Long story. I'd still like a drink of water if you can spare it. Amazing what a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Would. Except that you have nothing to draw water with, and this is a deep well. Besides, what do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water? Wrong story. But Jewish water is better than Samaritan water. Hmm? That's not what I said. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well? Your water is better than his? I know, Jacob. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Wouldn't that be nice? The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. First, go and call your husband and come back. I will show you both. I don't have a husband. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. <laughs> oh, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah. Exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So... Where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him, even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here. That it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what you've done.
you believe what I'm telling you? <laughs> Until the Messiah comes and explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me, I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity who was excited to be married. But he wasn't a good man. He hurt you. And it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know, but not by the Messiah. And you know these things because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon. Just the heart. <laughs> you promise. I promise. This man told me everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Wait! Your water! You forgot your um. Foxy, your man, you told me everything I ever did! <laughs> okay, we're gonna take a vote. Who just wants to watch the rest of that episode today and call it a day? <laughs> so, uh, if, you're, if you're following The Chosen at all, uh, man, there's so many beautiful depictions of Jesus's interaction with people, but there is none more beautiful than this uh, moment that he has with the Samaritan woman by a well. And so I want us to walk through the passage, um, but hopefully that brings it to life for you a little bit this morning. So let's start in verse three of chapter four. It says, uh, so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. 
Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. So uh, we know from the end of chapter two that Jesus uh, was in Jerusalem, and now he's headed up to Galilee. Jerusalem is in the southern portion of Israel, Galilee, the northern part of Israel. And it says now he had to go through Samaria. Samaria was right in between where he would have been in Jerusalem and Galilee. And so it would have been a straight shot, straight up. Here's the problem. The problem is uh, Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans were half-breeds. Um, they were unclean. They were less than. And so if you were a good Jew, as you're headed up to Galilee, you would go around Samaria in order to avoid any contact with them whatsoever. So why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Why is it that it says he had to go through Samaria? Because he had a divine appointment with a woman by a well in the middle of the day. Um, I love that, that Jesus, he's breaking all the stereotypes here. Um, what he is uh, going to do is completely out of the norm. He had to go to Samaria. And he comes to this well outside of the town of Sychar. And it says he was tired from his journey. And he sits down, it's in the heat of the day, about noon, important part to the story. Now look in verse seven. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman says, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them spring of water welling up to eternal life. So this interaction is scandalous. It's scandalous on a couple of levels. Uh, first, um, Jesus asks her for a drink and all of her red flags go off. And, and here's why. What's the first thing she says? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. So this reminds me, um, if you were here last week, remember Joseph's brothers when they come to him in Genesis 50. In verse 18, remember when they finally made it to him after gaslighting him and telling him that Jacob had said, hey, spare our lives, go easy on him. They go and they bow down to him. And what do they say? We are your slaves. They had an identity issue, right? They saw themselves through the lens of shame. And this is what is happening with the Samaritan woman here. She's like, hey, I'm unclean. I'm less than. You're asking me for a drink? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what race I come from? Why are you speaking to me? We're getting a glimpse into her identity and it's just going downhill from here. And this is scandalous on two levels. 
Um, not only is she a Samaritan, but she's a woman. And in this culture, women were less than. So she's got the double whammy working. She's Samaritan and a woman. And on both counts, Jesus culturally should not be talking to her. So he's in a place that he shouldn't be talking to a woman he shouldn't be talking to. But then Jesus, Jesus gets provocative. He says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you living water. So I'm sure she's confused, but she gives us a little bit of glimpse into her religiousness. She said, are you greater than our father Jacob? She had at least an understanding of her religious heritage. So we see that she's got a little bit of knowledge of religion from that region. And she knew that Jacob was a father of her faith. And, and so Jesus is offering water better than Jacob. He's saying, listen, the water I want to give you is a better water than the water Jacob offers. Okay, that's interesting, right? I mean, he's one of the fathers of the faith. She has no idea who Jesus is yet. But, but, but this is what Jesus has done throughout the gospel of John to this point. He, he's speaking to these people uh, uh, of, of a religious faith and he's taking the religious faith and he's re narrating to them what it's gonna mean in the future. If you remember in John chapter one, when John the Baptist comes on the scene, what does he call Jesus? Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So in the Jewish sacrificial system, uh, Hebrews 9.22 says it, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. And now uh, John the Baptist is speaking to that, is saying Jesus is the lamb of God. And it's really kind of giving us a little glimpse of what Jesus is going to suffer. Then you get into chapter two. Remember, he changes water into wine. Water represented purification in Jewish culture. And now he's taking the thing that purifies them and he's turning it into wine, the, the new wine. Remember, the best wine. And he's saying there is going to be a new way to be pure. Then he goes into Jerusalem and he turns over the tables in the temple and they say, you can't do that. And he said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Of course, he's talking about his crucifixion, but what is he saying? That the temple is no longer a physical location. The temple is right here. And that will translate to you and me moving in to the future. Then we move into chapter three. He has this inner interaction with Nicodemus and he tells him in order to follow me you must be born again that there is a new birth a regeneration over and over again throughout the gospel of John throughout all of the gospels Jesus is rewriting the law he's reframing it for them in a new way and so he's saying here that he is a better Jacob that his water will cure thirst forever. And of course, it would make no sense to her, just like it wouldn't to you and me if he said that to us, but she's in. Look at what she says, verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. She's looking from a functional point of view and she's like, hey, I don't wanna have to keep coming back here, so uh, I'll take your offer, I'm in. 
So this is where if I were God, I would insert the sinner's prayer, right? She, she's, she's in, right? So all we gotta do now is just uh, pray for her so she can get that eternal water, she can get that eternal life, so when she dies, she gets to go to heaven, right? Isn't that what we've been taught? I mean, isn't that the gospel? And yet Jesus is after something more. If it were that simple, I mean, he could have just said, hey, good on you, good luck to you, have fun back in the village, take your water, maybe I'll be here tomorrow and we can have another little conversation. No, he had something else that he wanted to get to. And look at what he does, verse 16. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And he says, you are right when you say you've had no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Hey, you'll take the offer? Good. Just run, grab your husband and bring him back. Doesn't it seem like a cruel thing for Jesus to do in that moment? She's already tipped her hand that she's living as a less than. She's living as a Samaritan. She's not quite enough. She's a woman. And so in that culture, she's got the double whammy. And now it feels like Jesus is heaping even more shame on her. Hey, go call your husband. I don't have one. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Not only do you not have a husband, you've had five and you got to live in right now. What is Jesus getting at in this moment? Jesus was speaking to her deepest pain, entering into her deepest brokenness, speaking into her false identity. I mean, think about that. He's not just good to, to live up here and say, oh, uh, here's, a, here's a hopeful story, so good luck, go on your way. No, he goes straight to her deepest sense of brokenness, her deepest point of shame. Yes. I mean, she was at the well in the middle of the day because she was an outcast. I mean, in that culture, women would go early in the day while it was still cool. But she came in the afternoon. She wasn't welcome in those circles. In fact, I'm sure she was the topic of many conversations around that very well, right? Hide your husband. (laughs) So she's feeling shame now on three levels. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan woman. She is a Samaritan woman with bad character. So let's just kind of put a pin in the story and let's talk about a couple things real quick. First, let's talk about wells. So this woman is having this encounter with Jesus around a well. But he called out another well in her life. The well of broken relationships, right? She kept drawing from the well of men, hoping to quench her thirst, quench her thirst for validation, for acceptance. And just imagine by sometime in in about the fourth marriage, how do you think she's feeling about herself? She's broken. 
and now she's given up on the institution of marriage after five, and now she's just shacking up with a guy. Because she's just like, you know what? This just doesn't work. Feeling this deep sense of shame. Going to this well over and over. And Jesus, when he called it out and said, go get your husband, what he's saying is you're trying to find identity in relationships and you keep coming up dry and parched. Her false identity was, if I can just get a man to love me, if I can just get a man to care, I'll be worthy. So here's a question. Uh, What's your well? What's your well? When you think about your life, what is the well that you keep going to over and over and over, trying to quench a thirst and it never satisfies? We all do it from time to time, don't we? Yes. We've got those places living in that false identity, trying to uh, uh, just get this insatiable thirst out of our mouths. Yes, yes. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your bank account. Maybe it's uh, the acquisition of things. And Jesus looks at you and he says, hey, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. I know. I'm speaking to your deepest sense of brokenness. I'm speaking to your well. But not only is he speaking to her well, he's speaking to her shame. We talked about this last week. Remember, uh, uh, the great American Jesus would stop at verse 15, Right? You need eternity when you die. So this will get you to heaven. And and that's where we stop with the gospel. We're like, hey, and I mean, if you're really hardcore, you're like, hey, you're going to hell. Who wants to go to hell? Raise your hand, right? Nobody would say that. But But it's this scare tactic. Not that hell is not a real place, but if that's the way, we want people to trust Christ out of a place of fear or out of an invitation to a better life. An invitation into freedom, an invitation into something more. And and we have dumbed the gospel down to, hey, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven when I die. And we pray this prayer. And that is an incomplete picture of the gospel. Amen. See, Jesus understood that. So he didn't let it stop at face value. He kind of spiritually went for the jugular. He spoke into her deepest pain. He spoke into her shame. So think about your shame. The thing that you're, you've been hiding and protecting for a long time, okay? What is your secret? What is the thing that you have not brought into the light? And I want you to picture it like an open wound. So if it's an open wound, I mean, there's a difference between a wound and a scar, right? I can touch a scar and it doesn't cause you to recoil. But if I press into an open wound, what do you do? Wax on, wax off, right? I mean, you're, you're like knocking it away because you're trying to protect the pain. And for a lot of us, we are living with an open wound and we're scared to death for anyone to touch it. And so when someone does reach in to touch the pain, what is the recoil? Defensiveness, flashpoint anger. 
And it's all protecting this place of hurt and shame that's actually deep, deep, deep. That is what Jesus was doing here. He was speaking to her shame. Um, Some of you have some deep shame this morning. And the, the deepest part of your shame is that you believe that you will measure, never measure up to the standard of Jesus. And so I've got good news for you. You won't. You will never measure up to the standard of Jesus because if you could measure up to the standard of Jesus, guess what? You would either be Jesus or you would not need him. And so the truth of the matter is, that is why Jesus is speaking into her deepest pain because he's saying, listen, go get your husband and bring him back. I don't have it. What he's saying is bring your shame to me. I'm not afraid of your shame. I'm not afraid of your brokenness. I'll quench your thirst. First, he says to you today, bring me your porn addiction. He says, bring me your failed relationship. Bring me your failed marriage. Bring me your dating app. Bring me your extramarital relationship. Bring me your bank account. Bring me your job loss. Whatever your deepest sense of shame is, he says, bring it to me. He's so interested in healing your shame. Redeeming it for his purposes and his Glory, no more hiding. It's no mistake that a chapter before, uh, we know John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. But the beautiful thing is verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. Some of you, you have spent most of your religious life believing that God is mad at you. You may even believe that he's with you, but you believe deep down that he's very disappointed in you. That when he looks at you, he wishes for a different son or a different daughter. He does not condemn you. He did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world, to bring freedom So look at her response. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Massive understatement. So I think she's just freaking out and doesn't know what to do. She's getting understandably uncomfortable. He's just spoken to her deepest pain. Oh, okay, okay, you're a a, a prophet, right? Then look at verse 20. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. This is a religious smokescreen. What's she saying there? She's saying, hey, I've got my own religion, prophet. You do you, I'll do me. You say that I gotta worship in Jerusalem. We say we worship on the mountain, I'm good. Is that not so prevalent in our culture today? That people kind of have their own version, even our own versions of what we call Christianity. Hey, I've got my own religion. And I've got to imagine that Jesus is looking at her and just thinking, yeah, how's that working for you? Your religion has led you to a well in the middle of the day. 
And she's avoiding a heart question with a doctrinal question. So she's using religion. She's saying, that's not my understanding of scripture. That's not how I interpret it. And know this, often people with high biblical intellect will use it to protect or insulate themselves from heart issues. Man, that's a tough place to live, right? Maybe you're here today and maybe you got the Christianese down. You know, maybe you know all the really religious language to say and you know how to uh, amen at all the right places. And you know, you walk in the doors, people are like, hey, how's it going? Like they never really wanna know, right? Because if you're like, hey, I got a bunion on my foot that I'd really like to, I mean, nobody really wants to tell the truth about how they're feeling. How you doing? Good. Are you? Because most of us will just say, oh, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, dear servant of God. No, we don't talk like that here, but uh, just imagine. We've got our own kind of cultural subtext going on. And often people that know the Bible backward and forward are able to quote it, use it as a weapon to deflect from heart issues. And so... Jesus again goes right at it. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Again, Jesus here, he's breaking down the religious barrier. He's saying, listen, I know that that you're talking about y'all worshiping here and us worshiping there, but know this, a time is coming and now has come that it's not geographical, it's a matter of the heart. And he says, they that worship me will worship in spirit and in truth. So what does he mean by that? Spirit and in truth. So maybe you come from a stream uh, of faith where uh, when you think about the Holy Trinity, it's Father, Son, and Holy Bible. You know, that, that there's a, a, a high emphasis placed on the word of God, but it's, it's, it's held maybe uh, in contrast to the spirit. And then maybe over here, everything is experienced and the Holy Spirit is elevated to the point where the Bible just kind of falls by the wayside and it's all about experiential Christianity. And what Jesus is saying is the true worshipers Worship me by the indwelling of the power of the spirit and the truth. That they go hand in hand. That that if you have one without the other, you're out of balance. It's like the true worshipers are now worshiping from a place where the spirit is indwelling and interacting and actually bringing the word to life. It's why we say every week, Hebrews 4.12, I pray that at the beginning of every message that his word is living and active. Amen. It gets in us. It infects us. Yes. And Jesus is like, hey, these two go hand in hand. 
And I think what he's saying to her is, oh, yeah, you clearly know just enough to make you dangerous. So let me clear it up for you. This is not about geography. This is a matter of the heart. All the doctrine in the world will not medicate the open wound of shame in your life because that's a heart issue, not a doctrinal issue. So um, I told this story a while back, but, but uh, several years ago, Yvonne and I were uh, at Tyler's in the Woodlands and uh, we walk in and uh, headed back to the shoe department because they got cool shoes and I'm not cool enough to wear any of them, but I thought, you know, I'm going to take a chance. And so I'm walking back and I encounter a salesperson as I'm walking by. And as I walk by, we both gave the, up, you know, and so, so she kind of gave me the up and I gave her the up and walked back. Well, it turns out she was working in the shoe department. And so I'm looking at some shoes. She walks back. She goes, she goes, uh, Hey, can I help you find some shoes? And I just turned and said, Hey, do you think I can pull these off? And she was like, <laughs> you know, which was very offensive to me. Um, uh, but I, I, I just said, hey, what's your name? Your name was Tori, and uh, how old are you? 19. I'm like, oh, cool, where'd you go to school? Uh, I'm just asking questions. I always ask a lot of questions. And, and uh, uh, she went to a school in the area, and uh, I knew uh, some people from that school that had graduated with one of my kids, and I asked her, she knew this person. Oh, yeah, I know her. Oh, cool, that's awesome. Well, I noticed that she's wearing a cross necklace, and so I said, hey, what's up with the cross necklace? She goes, what do you mean? I'm like, well, what, what does it mean to you? And she goes, oh, well, I'm not religious or anything. I said, oh, cool, me neither. And, uh, <laughs> and, and she said, no, I, I just, I wear this cross. I mean, clearly I'm gay. Oh. I didn't say that, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it was not a shock to me. Um, she, she, she bore that resemblance. She said, clearly I'm gay. She said, and the Bible says that um, you can't be gay and be religious. And I'm like, oh, who told you that? She said, well, people that have read the Bible, I've never read it for myself. And I'm like, oh, cool, you should probably read it. I said, because you know that the Bible has a whole lot to say to you that has nothing to do with your gender identity? She's like, Really? I said, oh yeah. In fact, if Jesus were to walk into the store right now, you know you make a beeline for? She said, yeah. I said, you, really? Why? Because you're very cool. You're very interesting. I think he'd really want to have a conversation with you. And she was kind of staggering in that moment. And she goes, who are you? <laughs> so I'm just a guy looking for some shoes. I said, yeah, so um, I'll take those. And uh, hey, tell me one way I can pray for you. And her eyes welled up with tears and she just began to tell me stories about her grandmother who was sick, about her partner who she was estranged from. And she began to cry and I said, is it okay if I pray for you right now? And I prayed over her and she said, hey, can I give you my number? Can we continue this conversation? And we had a couple conversations after that. And here's the thing. I don't know the end of that story. But I do know that when Yvonne and I walked out, we went and sat down at a restaurant. And I said, you know what's sad? That for most of the church, when they look at her life, where's the first place we'll go? She's gay. Is that on Jesus' list? Sure. 
but it's not number one. Because Jesus would be after her heart. So that's an incomplete story, but I can tell you my story. Um, I was a professional Christian. I was religious as they came. Um, I could pray like nobody's business. I can lead worship and lead you through an experience and, uh, you know, cue the single tear. I knew all the right words to say. I was really, really good at it. In fact, if you were to come to me and challenge me on some area of my life, I knew a lot of scripture. I'm really quick on my feet and I could deflect and I could, uh, I, I could have you leaving feeling like there was something wrong with you, even though there was a deep sense of emptiness in me. And it wasn't until my life completely fell apart that Jesus came near to me that I experienced God with me. And it was so painful because he had to say some really hard things to me. He exposed my darkness. He exposed the shame that I was covering up under, under this uh, bravado of being a professional Christian. He showed me my brokenness. And then guess what? He restored me and redeemed me and he walked with me day after day, helped nurse me back to health, gave me, really rewrote the narrative of what it means to follow Jesus in my life. And I'm so thankful for that gift. Because for me, there would have been a day when the only thing worship would have meant was a physical room with me sitting on stage at the piano, leading people, and he's like, ah, you're worshiping me, but there's not a lot of spirit in him, not a lot, surely not a lot of truth in that. And he needed to rewrite that narrative in my life. How about you? How about you? So look at this, verse 25. Um, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. She was longing for a savior. I mean, think about what she said. When Messiah comes, he's gonna work everything out for me. She was like everybody else in that culture at the time. They were just longing for the day when, when some king would come and rescue them from oppression. Somebody's gonna come and change my reality and I can't wait till the day that that happens. She was longing for a physical king to come and rescue her from physical oppression. And he says, hey, hello, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. And the way that I wanna rescue you is so much better than a freedom from physical oppression. I wanna set you free. I wanna change your identity from a slave to a son. I wanna set your heart ablaze. Maybe you're tired, maybe you're parched. Maybe you keep going to the same well and you keep coming up empty. The same offer Jesus made to this woman he's making to you today.
Jesus is right here, right now. Freedom. Freedom! It's William Wallace. Yeah, so freedom from, from shame, from guilt, from fear. Freedom to live in the life that you've been called to. And look at what happens, verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? What did she do? She left her jar. The reason she went to the well in the first place, she couldn't even remember. I think here the, the physical mirrors the spiritual. That when Jesus changed her life, changed her perspective, she couldn't even remember what she was doing there in the first place. All she did was run back to the village and say, he told me everything about my life. I mean, that's not a tight testimony, right? That kind of hurts our evangelistic sensibilities. She didn't go into the four spiritual laws. She didn't say, I admit that I'm a sinner and that I need a savior. No, she just said, hey, this dude just told me everything that I ever did and I've been transformed. How does your theology line up with that? Jesus can transform however he wants to, whenever he wants to. Here's what we know. Her life was different. How do we know her life was different? Look at this, verse 30. They came out of the town and made their way toward him. The people in the village saw the product of her transformation. That she was an outcast, but there was something going on. She was wearing something new. And they're like, I need to see that for myself. I need to see that Jesus. Here's the thing, when, when you give God your well, the well you keep going to, and he replaces it with a well that you can draw living water from, that now is springing up to eternal life, know this, you will be different. Yes, amen. That flies in the face of trust Jesus for heaven when you die, and then just live a slightly better version of yourself. Because when your life has changed, when it's truly transformed by the power of Jesus, people are gonna see it. They're gonna know it. Amen. And the people from the village came out to meet him. If you jump to the end of the chapter, verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. It wasn't a good testimony. It wasn't a tight testimony. It was her life. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came, with, came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of this, because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we heard for ourselves. Now we know this man is really the savior of the world. Many believed, but more than that, they began to interact with Jesus on their own. It was no longer about living off of somebody else's faith. They had faith for themselves. Come on, y'all. Okay, there are four things I want you to take with you as we go today as a result of this. Here they are. First, Jesus is Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
So I love that uh, the writer of Hebrews in chapter one, verse three, he says this, he says, the sun is a radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That's another way of saying, if you want to know God, look to Jesus. He is the physical representation of God. Jesus, God, they're the same. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is God with skin on. And the essence of the Christmas narrative is that God completed what he started by putting on flesh and entering into his broken world. But that's not all. Number two, Jesus wants to enter into your deepest broken place. Some of you have an open, gaping, oozing wound. And you're scared to death to let anybody touch it. You're managing shame and uh, you may even just have all the, all the trappings of, of a Christ follower you got all the Christianese down. You may uh, be biblically literate and able to intellectualize all the things surrounding your life. But deep down, you have a deep wound that Jesus wants to enter into. He didn't want you to manage your shame anymore. He wants to heal it. He is the great physician. He is the one that, that wants to, he's not afraid of your shame. He's not afraid of your past. He's not afraid of your present. In fact, that is his preferred place to go in you. He doesn't want the cleaned up places of your life. He wants the grossest places of your life. And we see that it's what he did in the physical and it's what he wants to do in your life. He wants to enter into your shame. He actually wants to name your broken well. For some of you, you know it, but you're afraid to say it out loud because you're afraid that then you'll be entered into some kind of agreement with God that you have to actually do something about it. But I think about it in Jeremiah 2.13. God is speaking. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. Listen, we hear that again in John 4. Then he says, and have dug their own cisterns broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Some of you have a broken cistern and your mode of operation is slap some duct tape on it. Slap that flex seal on it. That's the coolest stuff by the way, but just, just imagine you slap it on, they're just hoping it's gonna hold for another day. But all the water's leaking out because that is your life, it's broken. And Jesus looks at you today and says, hey, no more shame. Your cistern's broken. Let me give you a new well. I wanna offer you something new. That's number three. Jesus offers you a new well. He wants to quench your thirst with a new kind of eternal water, a well of freedom and healing that's no longer defined by your sin, but his grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 for it is by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Yes, amen. Here's the bottom line. If you could fix yourself, you'd have done it already. So maybe it's time to receive a new will. And finally, 
Jesus will use your brokenness for his glory. Look at what he did through this Samaritan woman. He changed the whole village. And of course I'm on repeat. I'm a broken record, y'all. Ephesians 2.10 comes right after verse nine. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. You were created on purpose for a purpose and God wants to take your ugly, your deepest, darkest pain. He wants to redeem it, restore it, and then send you back into the world with a new well to be living water to the world around you. Come on. It's what you were created for. The product of a changed life. 